Hello, Duncan Green here with the roundup of the blogs on From Poverty to Power for the week beginning the 25th of March. Um, Monday we had the usual link, links I liked. The, the, the standout for me was the amazing video of the student hacker in Christchurch after the horrendous massacre there. A few school kids started doing a, a traditional Maori dance to commemorate the, the dead and then just piles of uh, students joined in and I just can't watch it without crying. It's a, it's a very moving, uh, spontaneous event. On Tuesday, uh, Rene Giovarelli um, had, a, I thought, was a brilliant piece on delving into uh, this aspect of development, which I think is really neglected, which is the psychology of poverty and injustice. And she was discussing a new international survey by Prindex, um, which uh, looks at the connection between land rights and fear. Um, and, what is, uh, and what it found was that a, across a number of countries, a quarter of people are in fear of losing their land. But not only that, the, the level is 12% higher amongst women than men because women in many countries face losing their land after divorce or after the death of their spouse. So and, and in a way, fear is a kind of better guide to the realities of land tenure and land ownership than what's on paper, what's on the statute book. So it's a really, fa fa it's a really useful, important way of seeing what's actually going on. And the variations across countries were really interesting. The key seems to be the nature of divorce law and divorce settlements. So in countries where uh, they're either uh, men and women are treated equally during divorce processes or where women's unpaid sort of non-monetary contribution is taken into account in, in divorce uh, settlements, the level of fear is substantially less. So really interesting piece of work there by Prindex. Um, Wednesday, I uh, uh, discussed yet again uh, faith and development. I should say here I'm an atheist, but I keep ending up at some really interesting discussions on faith and development um, with both Muslims and, and, and Christians. This one was the discussion of a new internal tier fund report. Tier fund is an evangelical Protestant um, aid agency with a, with, a, with a real interest, I think, in intellectual rigor and in trying to uh, really think through what it's doing. And the, the report was fascinating by uh, Tina Freeman um, and uh, came up with six areas, I thought, in, in the report and the discussion of you know, USP, a unique selling point of advantage uh, about that come from being a faith-based organization. I think these organizations understand leadership. Naturally, faith organizations revolve around faith leaders, so they don't have any qualms or any, any, any sort of aversion to supporting and working with leaders at all levels, men and women. They totally get localization because um, faith institutions are probably the most embedded in local communities, and many faith organizations work through the, their, their faith brothers and sisters on the ground. They totally get the importance of norms and values. That's what faith organizations do. They shape norms from a very early age. And these are all the sort of the, the buzzwords in secular aid business are just meat and drink for the faith organizations. They've been there. They've been doing this stuff for decades. They understand the long term. Ask the Vatican about you know, what long term looks like uh, in terms of social change and, and, and building a, a piece of work. They totally understand fundraising. Faith organizations are brilliant at raising money. 
and this whole question of how you get local organizations off aid dependence and raising their own money is perfectly suited for uh, faith organizations to help. And there was a lot of interest in the seminar, at the seminar when I raised this from various people who were involved in fundraising in the, in the faith-based organization saying, yeah, we can do this. You know, how do we do more of this? And then finally, I think winning over the conservatives. If you're an evangelical Protestant organization, you can talk to you know, the, the climate change deniers in the evangelical churches. You can talk to a whole group of people that the sort of liberal left uh, guardian reading types um, can't. So I think that really does give you a, a, an ability to have an influence over society and politics, which does not exist for some of the more secular aid agencies. Lots of downsides, of course. Uh, the one that uh, Dina pointed to in her paper was where there's a mixed faith community or a minority Christian community, emphasizing Christianity and the way you deliver aid can actually exacerbate conflict and can be a real um, creator of tensions and problems. So I think that absolutely, and, uh, and of course, from Oxfam's point of view, very much better on gender. You know, some organizations work very, very hard to strengthen women's leadership, but many faith organizations are extremely patriarchal. So, so there are some clearly some downsides, but I thought really interesting discussion. On Thursday, Irene Kautz, Ruth Main, and Grace Lynn Higdon um, did a bleg, a blog beg, um, uh, asking for, uh, trying to crowdsource some success stories and developments. They've got a project now trying to look at where have good things gone to scale on economic inequality, climate change, and gender justice, with or without aid. So this isn't one of those, let's prove the, the point of aid exercises. It's just trying to understand when success goes to scale. And uh, so if you do have examples, check out that blog, send them in, because we're, we're interested in, in, in getting as good a range of examples as possible. And then on Friday, uh, Andy Sumner and Kathleen Craig from King's College returned to the thorny question of the humps. This has been, uh, there's been a, uh, I did a post, and then Jose Manuel Rocha from Save the Children did a post on have we moved from a two hump to a one hump global distribution of income? Is that true? What does it mean? Andy and Kathleen came in with sort of how much do we know? What are the you know what do we really know about what's going on with the global distribution of income? The the the, the most striking piece I thought in their in their in their um, post was the whole question of how long are we going to stay with this ridiculous definition that to be poor you need to earn less than one dollar ninety a day? I mean one dollar ninety a day is nothing. <coughs> Excuse me. And for every ten cents you raise that poverty line. 100 million more people slip below the poverty line until you get to something like $10 a day, which seems like a sort of more substantial level of um, at really being out of poverty and, and not at risk of slipping back in a sort of, you know, a proper um, graduation from poverty. Uh, 4.5 billion people in the world, well over half the world's population, live below $10 a day. So I think we are going to have to rethink what we mean when we talk about poverty, and I see that more and more on, in, the, in the blogosphere and the Twitter sphere. Okay, that's enough from me, and I uh, uh, hope you have a good weekend. Talk to you next week. Oh, and by the way, next week we have a big new announcement on From Poverty to Power, so do tune in. We're going to change it up. Big changes coming up on the blog, all very exciting, but I'm going to leave you hanging until next week. Enjoy your Brexit. Bye. <laughs>